But what if you viewed it, you know, in a broader context of it is our responsibility to this industry and our communities to open up the doors and give somebody the chance not only to learn the industry, but frankly, put it on your resume that you had an internship with us because that's valuable. And if you can give back in that context of let's let's provide real opportunities to people who don't have a dad or an uncle in the business, you can start to make little baby steps, but it's a lot of baby steps we gotta take. On this episode of The Climb, Michael and I had the opportunity to sit down with Molly McShane, the COO of the McShane Companies, a real estate and construction company based in Rosemont, Illinois. It's a family-owned business, and Molly is going to share her experience of rising through the ranks in not only a family-held business, but also being a woman in a primarily male-dominated industry. Molly realized early on in her career that things don't happen on accident, and it's definitely not a straight line to the top. You'll definitely enjoy this episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Molly, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to join Michael and myself today. Appreciate you uh, spending some time. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Of course. Well, I think a great way to kick it off would be if you could just give us a quick little background on you and let all the listeners know, you know a little bit about yourself and you know where you were and where you're sitting today. Sure. You got it. Maybe I'll start with where I sit today. And that is as Chief Operating Officer of the McShane Companies. The McShane Companies are comprised of three different companies. Uh, McShane Construction and Cadence McShane Construction are both general contractors. And Connor Commercial is our development arm. So um, I got to this place in probably not a straight line. I think there's perhaps more more applicable to the real estate industry, but a lot of us get there in kind of a a funny path, uh, which applies to me as well. So I started off, I went to Boston College for my undergraduate. And when I was there, I majored in marketing. And thinking at that time, advertising sounds really fun. You know, they are, it's, a, it's a fun vibe, really cool. I think that's what I'm going to go into. So I did. Right upon graduating, I went into marketing and advertising. And after about maybe I'll call it a year and a half of that, I very quickly realized it wasn't, you know, what I was meant to do in my career. You know, I found myself working really long hours, getting paid just above minimum wage it felt like, and you know, really not making the impact that I wanted to make in the world. So I started some soul searching and moved back to Chicago. Um, I had been living in uh, California prior to that, and started thinking about what am I going to do with my career? And I was talking to my dad about it. He said, well, you know, construction and real estate, those are, those are really good industries. We're a great place to work. Why don't you come work here? And I know your, I know your dad well enough to know that he's a very convincing person too. So (laughs) that is true. That is true. You know, when, when I told him, when I said, you know, I don't really have, you know, my degree is in marketing. I'm not sure I have the experience for this. Ah, you can figure it out. It's like, okay. So anyway, I did decide to kind of roll the dice and join. So I joined the um, exchange construction first. I really felt strongly like I wanted to know the foundations of the business and understand that at a level that I really didn't at that point in time. So I spent uh, four or five years in the trailers on the job sites um, doing project management. So I did, you know, everything from senior housing to medical office to, you know, uh, big factories. So kind of got a good perspective of the different types of products that we build. At the same time, I went back to graduate school to get my MBA. So I went to Kellogg at Northwestern and I got my MBA with a real estate and finance uh, concentration. Okay. Once I got that, I transitioned over to our development company, Connor. Um, and there, I spent lots of years doing different product types that we developed. So medical office, apartments, industrial, and got a wide perspective from the development side as well. So with those two things, 
plus my experience being on our board of directors for many years, I've now transitioned into leadership of the group of companies. So, you know, Cadence, McShane, and Connor. And that's where I am today. So when you came out, you got right into that project management piece. What were some of the struggles you had in that world? I know that's a challenging space to jump right into. And maybe even what did you enjoy most about being in in that part of the game? You know, it was a different environment than I was used to. You know, sitting in a trailer all day, kind of walking around, getting your boots dirty was not an environment I was had worked in before. And so I think that finding the right mixture of how to act in that environment, because it's not being professional on a job site kind of has a different tone to it than being professional in an office environment. So I think navigating that... Uh, that part of it, while being the boss's daughter, was a little tricky. What it, what it boiled down to for me was really the personal relationships that you develop over time. I think when you're, when you're in a trailer with somebody all day, every day, you get to know each other pretty quickly. And those relationships and you know, having mentors within that context, opening up within that context, really helped me to understand the business better and learn at a pretty quick pace with those one-on-one relationships. So that's really what I valued the most, not just internally, but you know, the relationships that we would have with our clients in those settings is really, you go out to lunch together and you have a lot of fun together and it's a little bit more casual. And so you develop, I think, more personal relationships pretty quickly. And I think that was my, my favorite part of it, meeting people from all over the place that was, um, you know, kind of an intense experience, but really rewarding. Molly, on that career path, and and I got to say, I, I I respect your father for not inserting you at the the corner office day one. You had to earn it. If you but, know my dad, that would never happen. <laughs> exactly, but you know, I, I think for for some of our younger listeners who are starting their career paths and kind of thinking through that. Like, did you have an idea in mind of the different levels you would be at within the organizations to to get to where you were? Did you just put the blinders on, put your head down and earned where you are today? Like, give us some insight into how that developed. Yeah, there there was really no preset path whatsoever. And I know that's different. A lot of family businesses are very intentional about training different generations to take over as leaders someday. We were not that. This was my dad's business. It wasn't a family business. We hadn't gone through any of the legal changes or training or anything when I started. It was really, I was working for my dad. And I think it's part of our family ethic, but it's also part of the construction industry ethic that you earn your stripes and you got to put in the long hours and the hard work And that's kind of what I did. It was just what was expected of you. So I don't think when I joined, I even knew what the possibilities were for my path. It wasn't something that we talked about. I just tried to do my best where I was when I was there. I think later on, there came a point... I don't know how many years into it it was, but I had been working exclusively for Connor at that point for... I don't know, maybe somewhere between five and 10 years in. And you know, that's when the conversation started of, okay, this we might turn this into a family business now. Um, we want some continuity in leadership. My dad was starting to think about, okay, if I get hit by a bus, what happens to all of these people who work for us and you know their salaries and their family? We really got to be sure that we've got this thing on very stable footing. So it kind of went along with that when we started talking about turning it into a family business with a board of directors and continuity planning, that we started talking a little bit more about more thoughtful career planning. And by that point, I had enough experience in different parts of our companies to know what I was good at and what I enjoyed the most. And for me, going into a more leadership role that focused more on strategy, focused more on, you know, kind of the long-term success of the business, growth of the business, 
recruiting of the right people, setting the right culture. That was the area that I excelled in. You know, I don't think that you can understand the business without understanding the details. So I'm, I'm fully capable of it and can often step in to help if we're you know, caught with a lot of things going on at once. But my skills were really more on the you know, management end of things. So that's, that's what we started looking at. And it took a while, even doing that before it was more of a clear path set for me. It was kind of feeling around in the dark where can you add value? Where's your skill? What are you enjoying right now? So it's it's different from a lot of other family businesses that are probably farther along than we are of you know intentionality in any of it. It was just do your best, feel around, see what you see what you're good at. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, but now knowing where you are and being able to reflect on where you've been, do you think that your dad was slowly and watching and sort of directing that even though you didn't know it? Or was it, I'm going to give her just enough rope and let's see what she does? No, I don't think he was secretly intentional about anything. Part of what makes us, you know, us as a company is that we always give people a ton of responsibility before they probably even think they can earn it. You know, we have people who are in their, you know, early 20s that are in charge of, you know, big contracts. And of course there's oversight, but we kind of, it's, it's not sink or swim, but you're in the deep end day one. And that's, it's just kind of a lot of our company culture, I think just stems from my dad and how he views things and how he found enjoyment and success in life. So no, I don't think he was ever really secretly planning it. I think he was really like, all right, let's see what she can do. And, and <laughs> that was it. And I wouldn't even say that my dad was always my biggest supporter in it. You know, I think a lot of other people saw potential in me that um, my dad might have been the second one to realize, but not the first. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, you got you had to earn it. He wasn't. He was not going into it thinking that his kids were going to you know take over leadership. Uh, I truly respect that, and thanks for sharing. As I shared yesterday, I'm the the dad of two daughters, and so hearing that story and and getting a really in-depth glimpse into this culture that can be created if you're not careful of, you know, everybody can finish first. I mean, that's just not reality. And the faster I think we learn that, especially, um, you know, being specific around being a, a woman in a male-dominated space, you know, kudos to you for figuring it out. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but I'm, I'm one of the people that in order to have the confidence in doing something and in leading others in it, I have to have the experience doing it myself. Um, you know, not to every single level of detail. I mean, I'm not an accountant and yet, you know, we have an accounting department. I'm not an IT specialist, but really going through the operational part of the business to me was important. And that's where I get a lot of my confidence because I've done it. I know how to do it. And now I know what questions to ask and I'm not really faking anything. I, I know what I'm talking about. And so to me, that's important. I think others, others don't need as much of that, but uh, for me, I did. So. And Molly, there's kind of two things that come to my mind. So it's one that Michael just mentioned, which is being a woman in the real estate construction business. So I definitely want to touch on that. And then maybe going back a little bit more to the family dynamic of the business and maybe some of the challenges that you run into there, or even the transition from going from, like you mentioned, your father's company to a family-owned business. What were some of those hurdles? And as we talk about, you know, with the kind of the title of the podcast, you know, the climb, some of those crossroads or some of those challenging areas, like what are some of those things that stuck out to you? Like talk a little bit about that transition. Well, when I, I was reflecting on part of this podcast being about those transitional moments and those points in your career where you can go one direction or the other. But the moment that I reflect on a lot is when I was in advertising. And I remember one meeting specifically, it was at midnight and my boss was at this meeting and her boss was at this meeting and we're all sitting around a table putting together a presentation that we were going to give the next day that the person we were presenting to probably couldn't care less about and take it or leave it. But it didn't mean that much to them. And it wasn't going to impact their business in a huge way either. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? 
you know, how am I impacting the world right now? Like, I don't want to be this person. Even if I get promotion after promotion after promotion, I'm still going to be sitting here at this table making a recommendation about something that I may or may not find important. So that's really what made me search out a new career. And I've been lucky enough to find one in which I can have an impact. And at the end of the day, I am making the decisions and those decisions that are important to me, I can put you know a lot of my time and effort into and steer them in the right direction. So I think that's number one. You know, I really found something, found out about myself that I need I really needed to be the one in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like everybody wants to be in charge, but I didn't realize that about myself before. I thought I would be, you know, happy doing creative things and working with teams, but I learned I really want to have a voice in it and I want to, you know, at least be a part of the decision making, if not be the final decision maker. And that's really important to me. So I found that out um, a little bit the hard way by experiencing the opposite. So that was one um, which caused me to. A little bit roll the dice going into an industry I didn't have any experience in, joining you know what wasn't even a family business at that point. You know those can go north or south. Yeah, family members. So that's a little bit of a roll the dice. Joining something I didn't have any experience in. So that was one area where I think I saw something in front of me I didn't want to go, and then I chose to go into a little bit more of the unknown and take the risk of going you know towards a new career. So. Another one that I've been thinking of has a little bit more to do with industry leadership. We generally encourage all of our employees to take active roles in industry leadership. So there's lots of groups out there um, that you can get involved in depending on what side of the business you're on, what city you're in, you know, which groups make the most sense. And for me, early on, I got involved with a group um, called NAOP, which is pretty active in Chicago doing um, a lot of industrial, but it's a lot of developers and brokers um, that are in that group. And I joined as simply a member of NAOP. But then I, jo- I was asked to join and did agree to join the Developing Leaders Board because I was younger at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 35 and under is the qualification, <laughs> which I no longer qualify for. But um, at that time, I did. And so Last I joined. Year. The- right, right, exactly. I just, just aged out yesterday. But I joined the Developing Leaders Board. And that was my first real experience with you know, working with your competitors and everyone in an industry to try to make some meaningful change beyond just what you could do as a company. And, you know, I really enjoyed that. And then eventually I got asked to lead that group. And even that, going from even a member of the board to leading the board was a very inspiring experience for me because, you know, what I was saying earlier, I like to be the one in charge and, you know, steer the ship. I could do that in a larger context with this industry group. And it really opened my eyes to the impact of, of your efforts can be magnified once you lock arms you know, when you're with your friendly competitors and try to really focus on areas of your industry that you think need improvement. So NAOP is one of them. I've been involved in you know, others since then. But that experience really broadened my horizons beyond you know, focus on your career, do the best that you can do in your own career to let's work as an industry to make change in our communities and help others. So, which is a super huge part of what I do right now. So I think those two uh, experiences were really what came to mind when you had asked me the question. And if you think about that too, from an industry standpoint, I mean, you look at the real estate and construction business, it's a super competitive marketplace. And I know Chicago well, that Chicago is, you know, sometimes even even multiply that even more. But as you came together with some of those other groups and leaders in the industry, what were a couple of the initiatives that you took on or maybe you had some passion around that really stuck with you? You know, I would say that the one of the most glaring issues that we have as an industry is that you walk into a room And there's 500 white men that are six foot two. And they're all ex-athletes. And they're all talking about, you know, whatever game was on this night. And it's not diverse in any respect. 
And I think that's really glaring. So there's been a couple of different groups that I've been in, some with the express intent of changing that, others with it just being, you know, one leg of the stool of how we're trying to improve. So when I was president of NAOP Chicago, we instituted a rule that you know, we put on breakfast panels, you know, once a month. And we instituted a rule that a woman has to be on every panel, period. You can find them. It's not as easy because we're not as plentiful as the men are, but we're here and we can find our, you know, enough experts to put on a panel. So we did that. And that was, I think, an important change. And I think it's been lasting since then. Now, now NAOP is focused on, it's not that they weren't before, but they didn't have that mandate before. And I think that's made some level of change is increasing the visibility of women who are already in the industry Um, because it matters to see people up there as experts, especially to younger people who who might want to, you know, envision themselves as up on that stage someday. So that's one thing we did through NAIA. But there are other groups that are, you know, more focused on other things, um, other levels of diversity. So ULI has, in many cities around the country, has the Women's Leadership Initiative. And I was one of the the founding members of the Chicago WLI branch. And that really does have an express initiative of bringing more women into this industry, supporting more women in this industry, helping them progress in their careers, giving them visibility. So really all the initiatives that we did within that, that context were focused on women. So it's it's going to college campuses and talking to women about what careers in real estate might be, getting women together in networking groups to help them find one another and mentor one another. It's getting women up on panels. Um, it's profiling you know, women who have been really successful. So I would say with WLI, that really is the express intention of that group. There's other groups that I've been involved with you know, that look more at racial diversity. I'll tell you, the reason that we said there has to be a woman on every panel at NAAP is because I knew we could do it. I did not say there has to be a minority on every panel because I wasn't sure we could do it. And I didn't want to put something else, some, put something out there, fail at it, and then have everyone feel very discouraged about it. So I think in setting goals, they have to be attainable. And I didn't feel like that one was attainable to have every single one, which is really a sad thing to say in the large city of Chicago, that we didn't have the confidence that you know we could get that many speakers. So it's really sad. And I think that um, there are different initiatives that, that I have tried. And listen, I am not trying to hold myself out as an expert in diversity and inclusion. I have a lot to learn um, from others, but I, I can speak to my own experiences and what I've done to try to make it better. And honestly, a lot of it, both for women and minorities, I think, is starting young. Once you're in college, it's almost too late. You know, kids know what they want to get into at that point. They have their majors. They've already taken all their prereqs. You know, but it's getting into the high school level and saying, because a lot of kids, you'll say, what's real estate? And they'll say, oh, um, it's selling houses. That's what a lot of kids at that age think real estate is. And they don't even have the vision of what it could be and what a great career it could be. I joke around, but it's true that a lot of us who got into real estate, it was either our dad or our uncle that introduced it to us, right? Me too. I mean, it was my dad. He wasn't in it. I wouldn't be in it. Um, I highly doubt. So it's really starting young, making it available and approachable. One of the other things I think about real estate and construction, the vocabulary that is used in the industry can be intimidating. You know, if you don't know what a cap rate is or, you know, pick your construction term, if you don't know what that is, you might be intimidated to join that group. Say, oh, they all know what they're talking about. I don't. I are. Right, exactly. You know, it's a little bit of a mental barrier for people to cross. So I think making it a more approachable career is really important. How do we get to, or how do you get to those folks before college? Like, is there anything that you've seen that's worked? Have you seen any initiatives out there that you've explored that have had some some success to them? I will tell you, I have experienced it to be very difficult. I have been involved in some 
There's one in particular that um, NAOP National sponsors. And I think, I know a lot of other groups sponsor this as well, but it's it's an, it's a summer, call it a summer camp, but it's an intensive experience that is aimed at black and brown sophomores and juniors in high school. And they come and they stay at a university. So in Chicago, we did it at Roosevelt University. But, you know, they've been at Georgia Tech and MIT and Cornell. And they spend like a week, week and a half there. And you bring in all sorts of people from the industry to teach them about commercial real estate. And, you know, you give them projects to work on. It's a little bit like, you know, one of those university challenges in a, in a you know, perhaps um, less uh, condensed form. But it's a summer camp and you can get 20 kids. So it's a great program, but it's not really at scale. You know, you, you've got at, at any one school, you know, a couple dozen kids at it. So although I think that efforts like that are absolutely worthwhile, I have not yet found something that is the real solution. And I don't think it's probably going to be one solution, right? It's probably going to be a combination of a hundred different things that come together to fix it. You know, I know ULI has some other stuff that, you know, they teach high school classes basically, but it's, it's going to take a ton of effort. It's going to take a ton of different initiatives. We have to be intentional about it because it's not going to happen by accident. One of the really great suggestions um, that I heard and that I think, you know, we will be implementing, we don't take a lot of interns on the um, development side, we do in construction, but we don't really on development. And I think if people think about internships in a broader context, you know, we think about interns as an extended interview, right? We, we're going to have but we're going to, you know, get you for three months and make sure you're, you know, you're pretty good at it. But what if you viewed it, you know, in a broader context of it is our responsibility to this industry and our communities to open up the doors and give somebody the chance not only to learn the industry, but frankly, put it on your resume that you had an internship with us because that's valuable. And if you can give back in that context of let's let's provide real opportunities to people who don't have a dad or an uncle in the business, you can start to make little baby steps, but it's a lot of baby steps we got to take. It's so interesting when you think about those larger initiatives and you you think, how do you tackle some of those things? And, you know, I think that the natural human reaction is to look and say, well, this is a big thing. How or what can I do individually to make that change? And in, in, in a short amount of time, instead of looking at it from a long term and banding together and doing more. And, you know, it, I mean, all of this is obviously very right now what's going on in the in the world right now is just like that it's like we got to band together and push together for a common you know but there's a lot of different things that go into it there's not just one solution and uh, you know everybody's got a different view and a different opinion of what is right and wrong and it's hard i think you're right and i think that what will help this continue is having the conversations i'm sitting here talking about my one singular experience in the world and what I have seen and what I have tried. There are people out there that are exclusively focused on this, that well thought out ideas that are doing great things. But if we're not having those conversations, you're not going to hear about it. And constantly what I see is, you know, so many people are frustrated with where we are as an industry and how we need to improve it. And the desire to change is there by, by, you know, almost everyone you meet. But I think some of the conversations to get there um, are slow coming. And eventually, you got you to gotta put your money where your mouth is. Make the hires. You need to implement things and, and lead in that way. And I think that... Um, I think I, I'm hopeful that we are at some kind of a point right now. I'm, I'm you could go back, you know, if podcasts existed 20 years ago, you could probably hear somebody saying it 20 years ago too, but I don't know. I mean, I think we've entered a level of conversation in this country over the last couple weeks that I think is, is good. I see business leaders stepping up to make social change and impact their, their own employee base. And um, I think there's reason to be, you know, cautiously optimistic. You know, M- Molly, taking that theme of, of diversity that we've been hitting on a little bit and 
you know, Bob and I's passion and reason for doing this is the the art of storytelling has just gone away. And so by listening to your story and listening to others, we realize like to become a leader, to become a thought provoker, to become someone like yourself, you defined it. It's you got to be willing to do the work. And I think that right there is is a defining moment that I really appreciate you sharing with us. And if you look at what has occurred in 2020, which, you know, feels more like a year, not six months, Bob and I have spent a lot of time kind of talking about the the old economy versus the new economy. And so from from where you sit and the initiatives that you have, give us a little peek around the corner of what you see the new economy being and how that affects you going about your business. Well, I think it's interesting to think about the demographics of our, you know, taking this from a super macro level. Five years ago, every single conference you went to, they're saying, nobody is ever going to live in the suburbs again. Nobody's ever going to own a car again. You know, we're all going to live in these micro apartments and, you know, take Uber pools to work, which, you know, sounded good, I guess, at the time. (laughs) (laughs) None of us really lived that experience, you know, oh yeah, all those millennials. But, you know, I think that it's probably going back more towards maybe a more commonly shared experience of, you know, maybe you're getting married later. Maybe you're having kids a little bit later. But as human beings, you know, we want social interaction. We want to live in a safe place. And for some portion of society, that's moving back to the suburbs. It's not for everyone. So I don't think that we're going to have the same balance of urban and suburban living that perhaps we did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But it's not all or nothing. It's not like everyone's moving to the cities and the suburbs are dead. So I think you're already, you were already starting to see some of that as the millennials got older. You were starting to see some people move back into the suburbs, you know, maybe the more dense suburbs, more walkable suburbs, but suburbs. You're already starting to see that pre-COVID. I think COVID took a whole bunch of trends and just put them on hyperspeed. <laughs> if you were considering moving to the suburbs before, you're probably getting real about it now. So I think that that's probably something we'll see. I think a lot of us, myself included, have gotten a lot more comfortable with different technologies than we were before. Um, I didn't know how to set up a Zoom call before COVID happened. But here I am doing a Zoom podcast. So I think some of us kind of got dragged into it. But now that we're comfortable with it, can I can I do something over Zoom instead of jumping on an airplane and going to see you for a two-hour meeting? Probably. So I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think technology is going to play um, more and more role for you know some of us that are now comfortable with things that we weren't six months ago. You know, um, you look at the boomers. My God, you know, between you know, Ubers that they can, they don't have to drive anymore, order Instacart. I mean, it's a whole nother experience to be retired right now than it was, I don't know, five years ago. So um, I think that's going to change a lot too. We're really active in industrial real estate development and we're pretty excited about it. I mean, it's, all the signs are good. You know, Amazon's insane growth path, but there's others as well. You know, all your 3PLs, um, all your internet retailers. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for room for growth. I think a lot of businesses after COVID are looking at their supply chains and perhaps diversifying certain strategies, either, you know, material procurement or their port strategy. But you'll get, um, I think, some other cities, maybe some East Coast ports that will benefit from this. Again, they were already on the growth path, but I think this might be hyperspeed for that. So when you look at the macro factors, you can draw some conclusions, right? But then you got to dig in to each individual market and each individual intersection and and really make the deals work. But it's a little bit more fun to talk about the macro. So, <laughs> <laughs> Again, kind of taking on the, the whole theme of, of this this podcast and and telling the story about you. I'm sure you heard this one either, you know, from your dad or a mentor or somebody along the way, but, you know, growing up, I always heard it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I always thought about that. And I thought, well, you know, that that's an interesting concept, but it is about what you know as well. 
And I heard a really good one the other day, which again, I think is is part of the catalyst of this podcast is it's not what you know, it's who knows you. And so if you're using this this podcast as a medium for people to know you, what do you want them to know? Well, I think that hopefully what I would like for them to know about me is something that they already know from working with our companies or our reputation that precedes us. I think it's really important that people know the individuals running the company because the ethics that you find at the top permeate down. And a lot of what we are currently well known for is straight from my dad, the the honest, ethical, straightforward, fair business tactics that he has, you know, used his whole entire life and our names on the door. You know, we're not working for a company. So if somebody goes out there and um, isn't behaving in the way that we are proud of, that has our name on it, there's going to be a problem. So, you know, I think it's important for people to know that that family value of ethics and honesty continues beyond my dad. It continues beyond me. I mean, it's, it's the leaders that we hire. Um, that that should reflect all of those values, and I, and I think that they do. You know, I think it's important for people to know where my priorities are in this time. You know, as you know, taking over the leadership of the company shortly, I'm leading in a different time than my dad was leading, and starting a company is different from growing a company. And we find ourselves in different times. You know, we were just talking about how the last couple of weeks of protests in these in this country has sparked these new conversations. So, you know, was, you know, real action around diversity something that was top of mind 20, 30 years ago? No, I don't think it was. It is now, you know, and it's not that that's a new value, but it's it changes over time, kind of what how you react to the world around you and what's important to you. I think that nowadays our employees, they don't go home at five o'clock and turn it off, right? I mean, people through emails till 10 o'clock at night, midnight. They're, they're coming in on Saturdays and Sundays. And the level of understanding about the whole person is important to us because you're giving a whole hell of a lot of your life to us and dedicating it to this company. And we need to show the same level of respect and care for all of our employees, not just while they're at work, but, you know, with their kids and, you know, you got to go to a baseball game, go to the baseball game, but respecting somebody as a, as a whole entire person, because that line between work life and personal life is disappearing. You know, it's, um, well, hopefully not disappearing, but <laughs> maybe a little lighter. <laughs> So, um, it's fading. you know, it's, you know, I think most people who have gotten to know me, I'm a little bit of an open book. I think I'd swear a little much. I'm trying not to on this podcast, but, um, you're, you're doing well so far. And, <laughs> and Mike, Michael's actually behaved himself too. <laughs> Bad a thousand so far. Let's see if we can keep it up, my man. Let's go. But anyway, you know, you kind of, you see what you get here. Well, Molly, I think one of the things I've, I've loved about getting to know you is just to, to your comment is like your passion around the business and who you are and just like how family and all of that does meld together. You know, you hear the comment of a work-life balance. When you hear that, what do you think? That is like the unicorn that you'll never find. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't think it exists. You know, you're going to be unbalanced this week in this direction. Next week, it'll be a different direction. You know, you got a newborn at home. You think you've got balance? Like, what a joke. So I don't think it exists. I think what you need to do is always keep in mind your life's priorities. And, you know, try to somehow, over the long run, balance it out. But it's going to be different at different times in your life. If you're an empty nester, you can eat at 8 o'clock at night, right, when you get home from work. That's fine. If you've got a 2-year-old at home... My God, you're going to be divorced if you show up <laughs> at eight o'clock. It's crazy. You're eating whatever's left of the chicken nuggets on the plate, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So, you know, I think it's, you know, if you take the long-term view of it, you're probably going to end up okay. You, know, you don't want to 
overcommit to one thing or the other. I kind of feel like if I can get 80% of the way there of where I want to be in all areas of my life at any one time, that's my balance for me. I'm, I'm probably going to suck at something today. I'll suck at something else tomorrow. But overall, you know, I'll do the best. How, how do you keep your passion and your fire for the industry and the business? Like, is there anything that when you're having, you're going, you know, we're going through challenging times in, in your world right now. And I mean, the entire world, is there anything that you say that you can fall back on from an inspirational standpoint or passion standpoint that goes, okay, uh, this is going to set me straight or get, get me back focused. Right. There's a couple things. One of the benefits of being in a family business is that you're really planning long-term. And so talking to, especially my dad, but others as well, who have been through really, really challenging times before, you think, okay, we're going to get through this. Like now's the time that you got to show people what you're made of and stick it out and do the hard work. This too shall pass. We're going to get through it. And that long-term perspective of you know, our elders who have done it before, I think is really important. I've kind of been blessed. I think there are some people, I joke around with my husband, that are just prone to stress, you know, and you could making French fries at McDonald's and stress out about it, or you could be running a Fortune 100 company and you'd be stressed out about it. It has more to do with what's inside of you than what's outside of you, I think. And I've been blessed with the ability to kind of just turn it off and stop thinking about it. And for me, that's important. I generally tend to, if things are really going to, it's always kind of somewhere back in your head, but try to put something something different in the front of your head. So I'm a big fan of watching science shows that have absolutely nothing to do with my industry whatsoever, but I'll watch something about deep space exploration on Nova and it's interesting and I'm thinking about something else. You know, it'll kind of just you know, take my mind on something else and give it a break. That's when the real solutions come anyway, when you're not thinking about it. I think taking that time to focus on something else is really important. Everyone's got their thing. I kind of joke around. I was asked once in an interview when I had really young kids, like a three-year-old and a one-year-old, what, do you, what, what are your passions outside of work? What do you do? Like, what do you mean what do I do? I've got kids. This is what I do. I'm not mountain climbing on the weekends, but at some point in your life, you do, you know, you can, you can do that again. And so everyone's got their own thing to take their mind off of it. So whatever works for you, do it. Molly, speaking of your, your children and thanks for sharing that, you know, with, with you sort of finding your way first, maybe finding what you didn't want to do, you know, with, with your kids, I mean, are you seeing a third generation of McShane's in the, in the company business? Or are you going to kind of let it just play out? I think we're going to let it play out. We have, um, so, you know, I have two ch- children, but, you know, amongst my nieces and nephews, there are 11 in the next generation. Wow. Yeah. And I, you know, what we have always said is, it's what my parents said to me. We just want you to be happy. Do whatever you want to do. Just be happy. Find what makes you happy. And we have such a wide variety of personalities in that little bunch. I think making the opportunities there for them to learn about the business so that they can make an educated choice of whether or not they want to come into it is something we try to do. So we try to talk to them a little bit more about it. But as they get older, you know, with summer jobs or internships or whatnot, um, we'll probably make those available if they want them. The other thing, though, that we are going to be very careful about, and this comes from a lot of research done with different family businesses, and there's a ton of it out there that we've tried to get smart on, is don't have the family business be the only job you ever have. Do something else first. And you know, find success doing something else before you come in. Because, you know, A... I think you're going to come in as a better employee then. You're going to provide a wider perspective. But B, you're going to feel like, you know, you're not just given something. And that's important because you're not going to find happiness, I don't think, if you don't, if you don't earn it. You know, if you don't work hard and earn it and feel like you deserve to be where you are and everything is just handed to you on a silver plate, you're not going to, you're not going to find happiness. So I don't, I don't want to do that to my kids or my nieces or nephews. Good perspective. What a, with with 
multiple generations now. What does a McShane family Christmas or, or Thanksgiving look like? Is it is it a mix of, of business and family? Is it all business? Is it t- give us some insight? It's loud. It is very loud. <laughs> if you could, I mean, there's probably 20 conversations happening at once. It's very little business, you know. There's only three of us that are in the business. It's my dad, my brother, and myself. So, you know, maybe the three of us might have a side conversation here or there. But it's really, um, you know, we're talking a lot more about, you know, saving the animals and what superheroes are the best. And so it's, that's kind of how I grew up too. My dad never talked about business at home. It was more about the kids and what we were doing that day and our interests and what was happening at school. And that's kind of how it is now. But around Christmas, we all get together. It used to always be at my parents' house um, outside of Chicago. Um, it still is. Last year, we went on a trip for it. So we might experiment a little bit and go into different... I was going to ask, Molly, because you got you went to Costa Rica. Was that yeah. right? Yes. As a, how many? There were 25, 24, 25 of us. Oh so, let me tell you, I planned the trip and it was a lot of work. So when we got there, I said, I hope you guys enjoy it. But if you don't, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> not my pr- not my problem. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was, it was a ton of fun. We know as a family, we love getting together as a big family, but we also recognize that everybody needs a little bit of space as well. So we don't usually rent one big house. Everybody has their own space to go home to at the end of the night to keep the peace. So it's uh, we've, we have found a way that works for us to you know keep going, but it's, it is a lot of fun. We have a place in Breckenridge, uh, a family place there that we always enjoy going out there and the kids always ski together. And uh, it's just, it's great to have these places where we can all gather as a big group because it's, it's pretty fun when it happens. So when, when you and Dan and your father are, are, you know, arguing at work, you're able to separate it from the family when you, you all get back together. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Honestly, it sounds crazy, but we don't really argue that much. You know, my brother, um, he and I have different personalities And it works out really well because he comes at it from one perspective. Generally, I come at it from another perspective. And we know if we agree on something that we've probably found the right solution. Uh, But we have kind of complementary skill sets and perspectives. And one thing that we have always done, you know, I don't know whether or not it was a thoughtful decision or if we just did it, but we've all been really respectful of one another's um, intelligence and gifts that we have to bring. And it's just always been like that. So not that we never disagree, but it doesn't turn into an argument. So, and I know we talked about it earlier and I could come back to, I was just thinking about when we talk about the family dynamic in the business, you all have a board of directors as well. So maybe talk about how that works and, and when you put that in place as a firm to say, we need this. Well, first of all, it's been great having a board of directors. We started it, the whole entire process to turn it into a family business with a board of directors happened, um, gosh, somewhere, I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago or so. But the initial impetus for it was my dad had a health scare. And that kind of made him start thinking about, you know what, I might not be on this planet forever. I should start making plans. And so we started, he started talking to other people about, you know, different alternatives that he had. And one of those would be turning it into a family business with a board of directors. And that's eventually where we landed. So we hire, we have three outside board members, and then there's a group of, you know, kind of inside members, I'll say too. So my dad, my brother, and I represent the business and the family, and then we have the president of each company on the board. Our CFO is on the board and then we have outside directors. It really is something that has been wonderful for our business. It's We have these outside perspectives that ask questions that are great questions. You know, how, well, why do you do it this way? And maybe that's something we haven't asked ourselves in five years. So we made a decision five years ago to do it like this. Is it still the right decision to do it this way? And so those really fundamental questions that are, you know, guest or second guest at that level have really brought our um, 
strategic thinking to a new level. And it's been really, really great to have. Um, we've gotten close to the board members. They're, um, they know all of us very well. And, and it's been great. It's been helpful as a family to have them. You know, for one, one example is it probably doesn't mean as much now, but in the future it may. It's just making sure that the compensation for family members is fair and goes along with what we think it should be. You know, we think it paid market rate, period. No more, no less. And to have an objective third party who understands all of the nuances to it is important in that. So having that source of objectivity is really great. I think, especially in a family business where we haven't experienced it as much, but we're certainly not immune from it. It's just emotions, you know, coming through or, you know, God knows in future generations when the individuals maybe didn't grow up in the same house, but they're working together, you know, those kind of either rivalries or distrust or, you know, whatever it is, it can intensify generation after generation. So having that objectivity, I think is really important um, for family businesses. So when I talk to others who are considering turning their business into a family business, that's usually my first piece of advice is number one, go get smart on it because there's a lot of research out there and a lot of lessons learned that other family businesses, it's interesting. You go to some of these conferences, these family business owners are open kimono. They tell you all the problems they've had and, and it, it gets, you know, it gets a little spicy. I mean, there's divorce, <laughs> this, there's that. And, but they share it with you so that you can learn from it as like, oh, okay, if that ever happened to us, how would we handle it? You know, so I think getting smart on it, getting through the research of how do you do this well in a thoughtful way, and then getting an outside board. Those are the two things that I think that we have done that have been very, very helpful for us. Molly, I could really respect that uh, that perspective and challenge. Um, having grown up inside a 150-year-old family company in, in Texas, I can remember the shift of of it being just truly family and decision-making done at that level to bringing in outside leadership and thought to help us grow because we thought that was important transition at the time. How do you go about deciding the outside board members? Like what's the criteria? And then is it, are they there for a certain amount of time and then they roll off or, or how does that work? So we have not gotten that prescriptive about it in our company yet. Our thought process, which was led by my dad at that point, was really, we've got different companies here. We need to have somebody who's really smart in the construction industry, that they can add value there. We need another person who's really smart in the real estate industry. And then we want somebody who understands family business. And so we identified three individuals that brought that to the table. But beyond that, what was and should be important to everybody is a cultural fit, you know, because it's not profits that drive our decision-making, you know, we're longer term and sometimes we'll make a decision that is not the most profitable decision, but we think it's the right decision to do. And so people who really understand that way of doing things help, help guide our actions. Um, so that's, part of, that's kind of how we decided our current board membership. I think in the future, there may be other factors that we consider. You know, right now it's um, one woman in the room. It's me. Boards typically are more effective when you have at least two women on them. Um, it has to obviously be the right woman with the right amount of experience, but that's something we may consider at some point in time. Having diversity on the board is important. We don't have a lot right now. So I think that's something we might consider. We don't have like a specific, you're going to roll off in two years to our board members. They have kind of been with us for a while and they've been just wonderful, you know, parts of our family and our business, but they're not going to be there forever. And I think it's too much to ask of somebody to commit, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Although you know, some of them, we would like for them to stay that long, but Maybe someday we'll get more prescriptive about it if, if we need to. I also don't like to place unnecessary restrictions on myself. So um, if we don't need to, we probably won't. 
I was going to ask, and again, of course, I'm bouncing around because this just came to mind thinking about as you talk about some of those folks that have been helping you lead. I'm sure I've seen you grow extremely over the last, you know, some of those board members have been there. Talk maybe a little bit about mentors and people that you would say have helped kind of shape the career. And, and then also, I know you have a passion for mentoring. So maybe hit on that as well. Yeah, I have a long list of mentors who have been important to me. I think one of the things that, you know, is a mistake is to think about a mentor as one person because, you know, you can grab little nuggets of value out of so many different people in your life, whether or not you work with them or not. Um, they can mentor you in different ways. So I, I, I have a long list. You know, my dad is certainly one of them, but, uh, but not the only one. I think one of the, the best things that I got out of my mentors was confidence when I needed it. When I was younger in my career, I was not always the most confident uh, person. I, I wondered, you know, does my voice, am I really is this going to be valuable to the conversation if I say it or should I just keep my mouth shut because people are going to roll their eyes if I say it, you know, asking myself those questions inside, you know, when you're in your twenties, you're just uncertain or I was. And so to have people that were older and more experienced, you know, ask my opinion and then value that opinion and make changes based on that opinion was really important to me. And it made me see the value that I brought to the table that, you know, they saw it before I did. They, they brought me along and, and helped me find my voice. And that was really important to me. I think obviously everyone has their own experiences with mentors, but that was mine. And that was really important for me to, to kind of borrow their confidence at times. Yeah. Well, I and, think that's important, Molly, because and sorry to interrupt, because I, I think about is, you know, even myself, as I grew in my business career and you think about, that inner that inner confidence and you know i think they call it imposter syndrome right should i be in this should i be in this room why am i in this room and asking yourselves those questions and then when things come up with you a strong opinion i know at least for me i remember many times where i sat back and said okay i'm not going to insert myself here i'm not sure if this is a strong enough point and uh you know as i moved on the executive committee at my company then it kind of brought me to another level that goes, why am I sitting in this room? And it's these people want you there. They want to hear your voice. There's a reason they're there. And your point, I had a mentor that said, you're not there because they feel bad for you. They're there. You're there because they value your opinion. Right. Right. No, exactly. And that's, um, you know, I guess that comes with experience to feel confident in that and um, because yeah, you and I are not the only ones who have gone through this. I think most people do. I talked to my dad. He went through it, yeah. you know, and, you know, everyone thinks that he's always been, um, you know, 100% confident. And, <laughs> well, Molly, you know, I think it, a lot of it is 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 what you've demonstrated to us in the, you know, in the hour, a little bit over an hour we've been talking is it's a balance. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, and getting my report card or the, you know, the parent teacher conference are like, well, he makes great grades, but God, he talks a lot. And, uh, you know, and then my grandfather always kind of telling me, you know, it, it's better to be seen and not heard. And so you grow up with that mentality and then you get into the business world and, you know, no, when, when it's your first meeting, you know, you need to bring that mentor with you or someone along and help you stumble through, but, you know, learn and recalibrate and learn and recalibrate and, I just got to say, you're you're such a perfect uh, example of what we are accomplishing with this podcast, which is telling the story of your climb. It's just been so fascinating to to dive deep into it, and and really do appreciate everything that you've shared. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I've I've enjoyed it as well. I uh, just a couple of quotes, Molly, that you said that you wrote down that I really liked was. I think you were kind of just talking about your career path and you said it's not a straight line to get there. And and I really like that a lot. I also love the, uh, you know, I, I figured out I wanted to be in charge. You know, I wanted to be the one having the conversations, which I think is great for our young audience to hear that. Uh, and then 
really enjoyed that starting a company is different than growing a company. So thank you for sharing those with us. Yeah, absolutely. And me, Molly, the thing that resonated for me is that planning for the long term. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting in, hoping you're going to have that corner office and taking that longer term approach, not only with your career, but also for your business. And I think that's just great, great advice. So we we appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us today. Thank you, Molly. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.